<laughs> Don't forget the jazz hands before the episode. You guys remember our pre-episode jazz hands yeah. tradition? I'm doing them. I'm doing them. We're doing. Or are you doing your Sean? Yeah. Duh. Jazz hands. All jazz right. hands. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, automotive technician and part-time song plugger at Frederick's Hubcaps and Publishing House. (laughs) I'm co-host Jeremy, but if you guys want, you can call me the next Miles Davis. (laughs) Ooh. I... I'm okay with calling you that. All right. I'll take you up on that. A lot of people are these days. Yeah. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook. And I hate to say it, fellows, but I might have to sit this one out. Oh? I was was just, you know, feeling a little stressed and thought I'd take the edge off by consuming a five milligram gummy of a, you know, a little edible. I accidentally (laughs) reached for the... Hundred milligram one, and I am now. I got too high. Uh, <laughs> too high. I was wondering where you're going with that, but you're going to a song we're not featuring today. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a track from this album. What is this album? This album today that I have brought is the Freddie Hubbard from his. 1974 Columbia Records debut, High Energy. Oh, well, at least there's like high in the title of the album as well. Oh, true. (laughs) Since we're not featuring too high. Yeah, Peter's bringing the high energy today. You know, I guess I'll stay on after all. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, where where are we going to start with this, Jeremy? We're going to start at the top of the album, Camel Rise, Side A, Track 1. 1974. Some jazz sounds for ya. Thank you. 
going back to Jeremy's fake title as the next Miles Davis, well, I'm not thinking of it as a fake title. I am going to call you that, Jeremy. Good. <laughs> but I, that's fitting because when I was listening to this, checking it out for the first time the last couple days, I kept th- thinking I was listening to Miles Davis here and there. <laughs> and you can hear it. Like There's a lot of sounds very similar to what Miles was doing in the 70s on this record. That's true. He was... He definitely has his own unique thing and was highly influential, but you could also look through his career and see him kind of trailing behind Miles Davis, doing similar things shortly after Miles does them, like this shift to fusion jazz rock. But that being said, I will maintain that he is unique in his own ways as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I shouldn't. Let me clarify. I'm not saying that I was like thinking like it's a carbon copy of Miles, but just there's a lot of familiar sounds and ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And he was called like the next Miles Davis when he first arrived on the jazz scene and was in fact signed because Miles Davis saw him in a club. This is a funny story. Miles Davis walks into a club where Freddie's jamming and Freddie is playing one of Miles' recorded solos during the jam, and he sees Miles and goes, oh, no, (laughs) and, like, real quick just shifts into, like, improvising a totally different thing, and Miles thought he was incredible and went to some label dude and was like, you got to sign this guy. So it worked out. It worked out. Sean, I'm guessing you're familiar with Freddie. Oh, yeah. Uh, I own a number of Freddie Hubbard records. I've sold many, many Freddie Hubbard records to people. It's it's hard to find a bad one. There's some weaker stuff in his later career, but one of the most consistent players and definitely on a level with Miles or anybody else as far as tone and playing ability and just his general feel of the instrument, maybe not quite as important for like the music that he made or like setting trends and shifting the course of music like miles did but definitely an important player and a hugely influential player yeah and to be clear he is a trumpeter yes just like miles true and i don't know enough about trumpet to make these kinds of comparisons but i did see people basically saying that Freddie Hubbard was a more technically gifted trumpeter than Miles Davis. He was able to play faster, higher, blow harder. Yeah, I would say that, yeah, even in the, like the track we just listened to, uh, generally more energetic, upbeat than Miles in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't have quite that like visionary taking a whole genre in an entirely new direction thing going on necessarily but as a player he was basically unrivaled and he he always had a great talent for kind of mixing groove and experimental elements that's like a running theme throughout the different periods and record labels that he was a part of his really cool fusion kind of danceable style throughout the whole thing yeah this is 1974, as we mentioned at the, uh, right before we played that track, funny enough, I just saw that released summer 1974, probably August. Apparently, the record keeping at Columbia Records 
this is very good <laughs> that they can't go back, you know, less than 50 years and find exactly when this was released. They're kind of a ramshackle outfit, I hear. <laughs> um, oh, wow. Produced by Paul Roth child the guy who produced the doors i'm sure we'll get correct that. Yep. <laughs> but uh let me just read off information from the wikipedia article those <laughs> are my favorite doing his his research while recording the episode <laughs> <laughs> how far into his career is this though like uh, you know like what this is obviously a turn towards like you said the fusion yeah this was 14 years into his recorded career and probably closer to 18 into his like actual career. And this is like over 30 albums in though. He was insanely prolific for decades. Mm -hmm. So this is a period. (laughs) Think of a lot of the criticism about this album was that he turned to pop and listening to this album, (laughs) the idea that it's pop music, these like, seven minute long crazy instrumental things like what yeah it's interesting uh that's what was going on in these times that that would be the the take on this album yeah well jazz critics have always been especially harsh of any jazz musician that dares to make a good living doing what they're doing yeah and freddie was fully a jazz superstar and quite successful at this point and moved to columbia because of the success so he's gonna get some hate no matter what music is on this record i would imagine yeah yeah that tracks but let's go back to the beginning so we have some context for what we're talking about here fill people in on uh freddie old freddie hubbard old freddie hubbard who was born frederick Dwayne hubbard in 1938 in indianapolis indiana Oh, wow. I just came from Indiana. You did. (laughs) Got here just in time to record this podcast. That's true. Hence why I'm looking stuff up (laughs) while recording. (laughs) That's that's a good look for you, Peter. But I was listening to the album on the way. (laughs) Fantastic. There's So reading many biographies and interviews, there's like almost zero information on his early life. Everything seems to pick up from when he starts playing music in his teens. He picked up the mellophone and trumpet for his high school band. And not that long after that, he started recording with uh, these fellows called the Montgomery Brothers, who was Wes and Monk Montgomery. Oh, wow. Another story that's like, yeah, I picked up these instruments and then I was playing with like the biggest names around. I don't know if they would have, if Wes and and Monk would have already been big names at this point. Yeah, they were not big names. They were, this would have been when Wes was playing the clubs in Indianapolis and he was like working all day, then like playing the clubs at night. So this is when neither of them had really found any success yet. Gotcha. And that's just wild. Freddie was 17 when he first recorded with Wes Montgomery. What a life. Yeah. So at age 20, he he was in college briefly and left college and moved to New York, where he almost immediately began making waves, playing at these jazz jams and then getting called by huge names to come play. And we're talking... 
like his first thing was with Eric Dolphy. Uh, that makes so much sense. I had some Eric Dolphy thoughts while listening to this as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then he's playing with Sonny Rollins and Quincy Jones not too long after that. Hot damn. Yeah. And in 1960 is when he first gets signed. And also that same year, he played on Ornette Coleman's free jazz album, <laughs> which is a landmark jazz album if you're not a jazz head out there. But, but also a very challenging album. So if you're not a jazz head, maybe uh, try a few other things before diving <laughs> into that one. <laughs> if you're going to go in that direction, I would start with The Shape of Jazz to Come by Ornette Coleman, which is a little more digestible in the weird jazz vein. That's a fact. And Ornette Coleman uh, called on Freddie because he saw him jamming with Don Cherry and was like, hey, you got to come play with me, which then led to him playing in 1961 with John Coltrane. And he's on a few different John Coltrane albums, including Ascension. I was going to say he's one of the players on Ascension. Yeah. An album that Sean... DJ Hardbargain Hartman introduced me to. I don't know if you knew that, Sean. Oh, nice. When we were living together, you had a copy of that, and I had never heard it before, and I played it over and over again. It's that's another, it's another challenging but rewarding record. <laughs> yeah, something yeah. new to hear every time you play it. Yeah, especially since there's two different versions of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, Fred, if Freddie's on that, that's awesome. He is, and it is awesome. I'm going to... Before we dig any further in here, let's play another cut. What you got? I want to play Ebony Moonbeams, which is the one that most jumped out to me when I first heard this record, and now is kind of like, it's the one I look forward to most when I put it on. So we're talking side B, track two, Ebony Moonbeams. I can confirm Jeremy lit up when he said that he was about to play this song. (laughs) Thank you. 
it was just kind of a twitchy energy to that one that feels so unique to me with its blending of like very slow moving elements and then these like extremely fast kind of spastic elements just happening throughout it and it has a a unique feel that you don't get much yeah it didn't necessarily establish like one mood out the gate and then improv from there it kind of shifted constantly it felt like yeah there's also a bunch of crazy time signature shifts in it which you know another hallmark of pop jazz (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is definitely my favorite or like one of my favorite versions of the jazz fusion sound you know Freddie just came off of being on CTI Records, which was a label that we all love. Definitely a lot of the sound pioneered on there. You can hear on this record. That's Creed yeah. Taylor's label. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The great CTI Records. One of the best jazz labels ever. But yeah, the, the, the funk is still in place with these. It hasn't gone into like full fusion shred territory like a lot of bands did later on in the 70s. You know, it's not just completely let's all show off on our instruments. The, the song is still there and intact, even though they are doing some complicated stuff here. Yeah, Freddie was starting to take off there. Yeah, he goes off a few times on this album where it's just like, what in the world? That's like, I don't know. He does some wild stuff on trumpet that also feels kind of unrivaled. (laughs) Let's jump back into the timeline before Sean just spoils the whole thing, just (laughs) revealing his future before us. So we're in the 1960s where Freddie goes on to record eight albums under his name and played on 28 different albums including with Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, Wayne Shorter, Bill Evans, George Benson, Herbie Hancock, Quincy Jones and Wes Montgomery, and Sonny Rollins. All the big names. Yeah, that's just, you know, anyone, getting to play with any one of those people would be an insane accomplishment, and he was just first call for all of these jazz legends in that era. Yeah. I mean, he's also, he's also getting solo records or band leader records on both blue note and impulse records by this point. Like he's just hitting all the, (laughs) the jazz milestones, all the bragging rights. Yeah. And I think that's important because he is, by the time this album comes out in 1974, he has nothing left to prove. (laughs) True. He's already like done it all. I'm sure he wouldn't want to call them milestones, though. He'd want to call them Freddy Stones. Oh my god! <laughs> wow, Peter. But as Sean mentioned earlier, this is like right in the thick of the modern jazz kind of phase, and what Freddie was known for was retaining elements of bop and also blending them with the modern jazz sound and free jazz. So he'll like go out there, but he'll also like jump back and get in the swing and like establish a nice cutting vibe. And yeah. Yeah. It's like he was the guy that could add a little bit of a little bit of swing to a free jazz record or take a, a bop record and push it a little farther out than other people might've. 
I will say that if you ever if you want an interesting experience with this album, drive into Indiana in a heavy rainstorm while listening to it. It seems the right context for it. Is this before or after the uh, gummy? <laughs> oh yeah, maybe that had some influence as well. <laughs> Atta boy, Peter. So as Sean mentioned, come 1970, after he'd already done everything in jazz, he gets signed to CTI, where he puts out seven more albums with CTI under his name. Some of them are considered landmark albums themselves. His album Red Clay is seen as, you know, a hallmark jazz album. Definitely not an album you're going to find in a dollar bin. Well, probably not. I mean, like all the CTI stuff used to be really, really easy to find, you know, 10 years ago. And it, it's definitely gone up. A lot of stores will be pricing the better CTI records in like the 20 to 30 range. But, you know, you can still find it cheap if you try hard enough. Yeah. Try hard. <laughs> and Freddie was like the best selling artist on CTI. So there are a bunch of his records out there. Yeah. Which led him to this next phase where he was signed by Columbia for a boatload of cash. And this is his first album with Columbia, the one we're listening to, High Energy. It was released in 1974. Sometime in 1974, as we established. Yeah. One of a, f a couple albums he put out in 1974 as well. Most years, he's putting out more than three records, like three or more records. So he's just cranking stuff out and... As Sean mentioned earlier, almost none of it's bad. <laughs> like, most of it is good or better. Let's dip a little bit into the players who are on this record. Yeah, there's some, some people we've talked about before. There yeah, are many familiar names, many legends. Yeah, many legends and familiar names, true. Let's start on the tenor sax and flute. There is Junior Cook. And no relation to me. No relation to Peter. <laughs> Let's get that out of the way right now. Let's just... <laughs> Tired of these rumors. <laughs> Got Dick Hyde on the trombone. Legendary trombonist. He's played with Herbie Hancock, Frank Sinatra, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Tom Waits, the Beach Boys. Quite the resume. Yeah. It's... I'm just gonna... Like, there's so many of these people with insane resumes. Including George Bohannon. Also on trombone, not the Bohannon we talked about previously. That's Hamilton. Yeah. But this Bohannon has played with Miles, Frank Sinatra, Sarah Vaughn. So he's got a resume. Pete Chrislib played tenor sax and bass clarinet. He's played with Quincy Jones, Peggy Lee, Tom Waits. A lot of Tom Waits popped up in here. That kind of surprised me. Ernie Watts. Played flute and soprano sax. He's another huge name. He's played with the Rolling Stones, Frank Zappa, Denise Williams, who we talked about previously. About a hundred other names. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm willing to bet that Ernie Watts might be the most featured, like, sideman. And I'd buy that for a dollar episodes. He's just been on so many records we've covered. That's true. I should have made a mega list of the records he's on. <laughs> But I, I think the guitarist on this record has been on a lot of stuff we've talked about as well. That's true. true. Dean Parks. 
yeah. on the guitar. He played with the Crusaders, Kenny Loggins, Steely Dan, who we have not and will not ever feature. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was even on the Jody Watley record. <laughs> I didn't notice that one, but wow. George Cables played the electric piano on this album. He's played with a bunch of jazz legends, Art Blakey, Max Roach, Archie Shepp, and he wrote Ebony Moonbeams, the last song we listened to. He is a great jazz musician in his own right. And he he was part of Freddie's official band at this point. They're on a number of records together. Correct. I, I saw a few different reviews that said that George Cables is kind of the unsung hero of this record or this time period for Freddie because he really holds it down, does a great job on the keys, and like you said, contributed one of the songs as well. Yeah, I think he wrote two of the songs on this album. I think there's two from him, two from Freddie, and two Stevie Wonder songs. Oh yeah, you're right. Joe Sample, also a crusader, also someone we've talked about a billion times on here, played the clavinet and organ. He also played with Michael Franks, Cher, Joni Mitchell, crazy list. Got Ian Underwood, who I did not <laughs> expect to see on this album, but yeah, he played synthesizer. He's known for mostly the Frank Zappa's band being in that. Also played with Captain Beefheart, though, and Quincy Jones, and a bunch of other people. Yeah, he's been on a number of records we've covered as well. I mean, most of the band on this album we featured at least once before. Yeah, we got. Kent Brinkley on bass, Harvey Mason and Ralph Penland on drums. I'm going to spare you guys the insane list for every single person at this yeah, point. understandable. <laughs> Go look them up if you want to read their resumes. Victor Feldman, King Arison, and Carmelo Garcia on percussion, and Dale Oler on the arrangements and conducting. Quite the list of players ridiculous list of players yeah it's like columbia went all out on their big investment they got the best of the best yeah i was gonna ask if that's uh being able to get that lineup is partially due to now being on columbia with a bigger budget he was already playing with huge names for years at this point so as we established yeah Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) so that that really probably wasn't well, that probably wasn't the biggest draw for him to be on Columbia, being able to access to players. He had that already. Yeah. 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 From reading interviews with him, it sounds like money was what drove him to Columbia. He had been hustling in New York for years, playing with all these jazz heads, and him and a handful of other jazz legends all decided to move out to California, to L.A., And he said, you know, he wanted to be able to send his kids to school, be able to take vacations. He was just ready to stop the constant hustle and, you know, enjoy life a little. And who can blame him? Got to secure the bag. Freddie deserved it. Yeah. What Freddie did not deserve, the Rolling Stone Chaz Record Guide gave this one out of five stars. As was mentioned, a lot of critics really laid into this record as being a pop affair and Freddie selling out, essentially. What did, what did they want? Every jazz record to sound like 
the black saint and the sinner lady. Yes. It <laughs> seems that is exactly that. what they want. Yeah. <laughs> Which Freddie would then go on to uh, essentially cash in on that <laughs> feeling by joining VSOP which was essentially Miles Davis's classic 1960s lineup with Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, Tony Williams and Wayne Shorter and Miles didn't want to do that. He said he didn't want to go back in time. So they approached Freddie and Freddie was like, "Yeah." So, uh, so they were they were trying to recreate the classic Miles 60s lineup. He, yeah. He didn't want that, so this is in the 70s, the mid-70s now. <laughs> yeah, this is in 77 when they form. And they went on for a few years doing some recordings and a bunch of live shows, kind of throwing back to that jazz that all those jazz critics love. Some some wild, weird, wild stuff. Yeah. You know, I saw that All Music at least gave this three out of five stars. And them and like a few of the more kind reviews I read kind of pointed out that Yes, of course, this is not Freddie's greatest record, like probably not even close to his greatest record. However, it's much better than people give it credit for. And in the case of the you know record collecting angle, this is an often overlooked album. People don't talk about this one. People don't know it. And you're way more likely to find it in a dollar bin. Yeah. And it still shreds harder than most albums. So. Yeah, that's the thing. Like with when you got an artist of the stature of Freddie Hubbard, even his like B level records are still better than most people's entire career. Well, of course that all music review would have been a retrospective review, not a contemporary review. True. So, so true. They, they had time and space to reflect back upon it. Whereas I'm guessing that Rolling Stone one yeah, you mentioned that... was a contemporary to when the album came out. Yeah. I was reading like other people's reviews of this album and it seems like as time has gone on and that context that it was within kind of gets lost to time when people just listen to the album, they're like, oh, this is really good. Mm -hmm. Time's a funny thing like that. Yeah. Freddie went through the 80s, cranking out more albums, playing lots of shows. He's also partying a lot in this era. He said he'd have pool parties all the time. He's living that wild LA life and he ends up getting a stomach ulcer that was so bad that his doctor said he had to stop partying or he was going to die and then also around this time in 1992 Freddie split his lip open he was playing and he didn't warm up properly and just like literally blew his lip out, which I did not Ugh. even know was possible and makes me like shudder thinking about. Yeah, geez. And he just ignored that it happened and kept playing through it and it got really infected and he had to stop playing and they had to deal with it. And that put a damper on his playing for the rest of his life. Oh, geez. He was never able to get his chops back to where they were before that injury. So. Oh, wow. Let that be a lesson to all you trumpet players out there. Warm up. Yeah, warm up. Especially if you are the hardest blowing, fastest playing trumpeter in the world. <laughs> warm up and also don't skip leg day. 
Don't skip leg day. His output slowed down after this. He only put out three albums after 1992 until his passing in 2008. He had congestive heart failure and passed away at age 70. Uh, Just previous to that, in 2006, he received one of the most prestigious jazz awards, the NEA Jazz Masters Award. So he did get his flowers in his time, and, I mean, he did when it was happening as well. I don't Mm. think he was unsung, though from the 70s and through the 80s, he definitely kind of fell off, you know, the radar of the jazz critics. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I want to cut to another song. We're going to do, I'm calling an audible because I wanted to play Sean's favorite song in this album. Uh-huh. So here is Sean's favorite song, Crisis, Side B, Track 1. definitely my favorite song on the album it just keeps taking these unexpected shifts there's a a weird combination of genres he's got the jazz funk thing happening but kind of combine it with this early big band jazz but yet the whole thing just still works better than it probably has any right to and stays funky the whole time also you hear a little bit of the latin jazz influence in the percussion which was something he kind of had explored more especially during the atlantic records period before this yeah, I really like where he just shifts into that like swing jazz all of a sudden randomly mm-hmm. and then so just shifts fun. back out and it's like so clean. 
That was super cool. And as you hear, he's hitting some ridiculous high notes on that trumpet that it sounds like he's like hitting the physical limitations of what a trumpet can make the sound of. We mentioned at the beginning that this was produced by Paul Rothschild, best known for producing much of the work of The Doors. I'm looking at his other production credits. I'm not seeing jazz on the list. I'm seeing John Sebastian from The Love and Spoonful, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Tom Paxton, Fred Neal, Love, Tim Buckley, it does, Janis Joplin. There's, no, I'm not seeing jazz. Do you think that could be – are the jazz critics, are they that per- perceptive that they're – noting pop production as opposed to a a jazz production? Possibly. I think there was some pushback from having this pop producer working on this record for sure. And letting rock influence in, I think Mm -hmm. was a big touch point for the jazz critics. They did not like these jazz guys turning to rock and, you know, mixing the genres. Mm Mm-hmm. Not only is he not on CTI, but he's got that buffoon Jim Morrison's producer <laughs> behind the controls. So I just I was just looking at that. I was just like, you know, I thought more about it. I'm like, Paul Rothschild, I can't think of him switching to jazz very much. So I was curious. Nope, just a one-off special project with Freddie. I'm sure they had a good time. Oh, yeah. Pool partying all day in L.A. <laughs> Getting ulcers on the West Coast. Getting ulcers on the West Coast. <laughs> that That's an album title right there. <laughs> oh, boy. Sean, Dad, it is yeah. that time of the episode. I bet you might be wondering what similar records I could uh, suggest to the people. That is exactly what I was hoping for. Well, some episodes it's kind of difficult for me to come up with recommendations. Sometimes it's music. It isn't something I collect a whole lot of, and it's hard for me to figure it out. This one, very easy. I love buying jazz funk records, as listeners of this podcast know. So I came up with three different 1974 jazz funk records that I own. First one, George Benson's Bad Benson from 1974 on CTI Records. Very fun part of George Benson's career where he's hasn't gone like full pop hit maker yet. He's still doing this jazz fusion, still shredding amazing records, still cheap too. Second one is Phil Woods Music Dubois on Muse Records. I think that one is a good comparison to some of the more spacey tracks that you're going to hear on here, some of the more atmospheric jazz elements. And Phil Woods is another guy with amazing, impressive resume, worked with everybody, did some really, really good records. Final recommendation, the Cannonball Adderley Quintet. The record is called Pyramid from 1974. came out on Fantasy Records and is produced by David Axelrod. Another good example of this kind of cinematic jazz funk fusion style. And all three of those can be found pretty cheap. If you keep looking, keep digging. One that I will add to that list, which great recommendation, Sean, Uh, Higher Ground, an album we previously covered by Johnny Hammond, also released in 1974. Perfect. And on the Kudu label, which is 
connected to CTI. Mm-hmm. It's like the subsidiary of CTI. And we did that episode, I think that was going back to season one quite a while ago. I It all runs together in my mind now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Been at it a long time. About to get close to wrapping up season three here. That's true. A few more, a little break, and we launch into season four. If you haven't already, listeners, if you, you like these episodes and you want more content, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. We have a lot of bonus episodes. I don't know what our count is. I believe it's over 25 at this point as of this recording. True. And a handful of our special mixes. Yeah. Got the monthly mixes made rotating by all three of us we, each of us each month we, we trade around how do i say this <laughs> we're taking turns making mixes each month peter put out a banger this month full of all-timer songs yeah i think as of this airing it'll be last month oh true <laughs> the july mix oh boy i better get to work i know it's sean next oh yeah that's right who it is me next so plenty of content over at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. You can support us in this little venture and get some cool stuff in return. Fantastic. Is there anything else y'all wanted to say about Freddy before we head out? I have nothing further. I made it through this episode too high. He <laughs> wasn't even that weird. Other than that little dance he did, but... <laughs> the listeners did not see that. Yeah. Great. Well, let's get out of here. I'm co-host Jeremy. Thank you for listening again. What, what are we going out on, co-host Jeremy? I'm running. I already ran away. It's too late. <laughs> now we're leaving on Black Maybe. Black Maybe. Yeah, which really starts with Freddie alone on the trumpet and really puts his tone out there it's that sound that you just know is freddy as soon as you hear it and it's devoid of everything at first so you really get to hone in on that tone no matter how much pop sheen paul rothschild throws on it <laughs> no matter how hard he tries <laughs> awesome and this is another song written by stevie wonder for i believe the first cyrita record where you can hear the original version with words and everything yeah, that sounds right. I think right. there's words. I think there's <laughs> words to it. Maybe it's an instrumental. Now I'm now I'm second guessing myself. But Stevie Wonder did write this song, and it appears on a Cyrita record. That much I know. <laughs> All right. Well, co-host Jeremy has signed off. This is Peter Cook. Thanks for listening. To I'd buy that for a dollar. I'm Sean Hartman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>